scripture passage this evening is John chapter 12, verses 20 through 36. It can be found in your pew Bible on page 1,671. 1,671. It is the passage following right after the triumphal entry that we looked at this past Sunday. Starting in verse 20, hear now God's holy word. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be, and my Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and will glorify it again. The crowd was there and heard it, said it thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up, we have heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, you are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark does not know where he is going. Put your trust in the light while you have it so that you may become sons of light. And when he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. The reading of God's word, may he bless it to the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. Will you pray with me? Father, bless this time that we look at your word. May it be something that reveals to us and renews and conforms in us. The true character and nature of Christ, our only comfort in life and death, our faithful Savior, who in his death freed us from the tyranny of the devil. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good Friday. This is what we call today in the church Good Friday. But often when we gather for this service, there is a 
a somber attitude. There's a heaviness to our reflection. We sing many passion hymns, but carefully make sure not to sing the fourth verse, which speaks of his resurrection. You know, this isn't wrong in and of itself. There is a liturgical nature to the calendar that in a sense we are to leave tonight as if Jesus is really in the tomb and that come Sunday and the first words we say are, He is risen. As if He hasn't been risen for many, many years. But it's not the whole picture, is it? You see, we call it Good Friday for a reason. It's good because the cross is our only hope. It's good because the cross means salvation. The cross is our grace and mercy. And when we emphasize the suffering of Christ, and when we try to work up in ourselves a kind of sadness for what Christ had to go through, which, as I said, is not in and of itself wrong, we can begin to diminish or overlook the victorious character of his passion, of his suffering. And this is something that we should take note of, particularly in the Gospel of John as we've been looking at it, because Christ is not a victim to John, but a victor in the cross. John says his cross is his exaltation. His being lifted up is his glorification. And we cannot lose sight of the fact that Christ says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. It is through the cross that Christ not only brings victory over the prince of this world, the powers of darkness, but it is through the cross that Christ brings salvation to all people of every nationality and background, every tribe, every tongue. And this is exactly what we see in our passage today, that the cross of Christ brings victory over sin and Satan. And we see this in three parts. The first is the breaking down of the dividing wall, which Christ begins to reveal that will occur through his being lifted up. We see it in his analogy that he gives of the dying seed. And we see it in his picturing of the cross as a drawing of all people. As a magnetic drawing of all people. So let's look first at the dividing wall. Maybe you don't know necessarily what I'm speaking of there. Well, in the first two verses of our passage tonight, we see something that is interesting, to say the least. Following right after Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem and the tongue-in-cheek statement from the Pharisees that the whole world has gone after him, we're introduced to some Greeks. That's what we're told. Now there were some Greeks among those who had come to worship at the feast. These are most likely God-fearers, 
or another name for the Gentile converts to the Jewish religion. And if this is taking place at the temple, which is implied by the statement of worship, had come up to the Passover, the feast to worship, these Greeks would have been in the outermost court called the court of the Gentiles. And what that represented was that because they were not ethnically Jews, they were to be the furthest from the presence of the Lord and the Holy of Holies. They were unclean. It would have been improper and, in fact, illegal for them to enter in. There is a dividing wall of hostility between these Greeks and Jesus. He cannot be reached by them. And Paul describes the condition of these Greeks in his letter to the church in Ephesus, saying in chapter 2, Therefore remember, you Greeks, you Gentiles, that formerly you, by birth, called the uncircumcised by those who called themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember, at that time you were separate from Christ excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. Here these Greeks are, separate from Christ, separated from Christ by a wall there in the temple. Therefore they have to send Philip to ask Jesus to come out so that they can meet him. And Maybe we would wonder why is it that they ask Philip, well, his name is actually of Greek origin, and we're told right here in the text that he's from Bethsaida, which was populated by many Gentiles, and so they might have felt more comfortable in approaching him. Maybe they knew him, and we see these words here, sir, we would like to see Jesus. Maybe... Many of you are more familiar with the popularity or the popularization of this phrase from the New King James or King James Version. Sir, we would see Jesus. We would see Jesus. It's actually placed right up here on the pulpit on a little placard. It says, sir, we would see Jesus. And it's a reminder to me as a pastor that when I preach who I am presenting primarily to the people of God as your hope and your foundation is none other than Jesus Christ. And these words are spoken from these Greeks. We would see Jesus. And their desire to see the Son of God is to be commended. And it's a desire we should strive to cultivate in our own lives And not only here in the pulpit should the people of God be saying, we would see Jesus. But also in our prayer life through our Heavenly Father, we should be asking, Father, we would see Jesus. In our family, in our church, in our personal interactions, we would see Jesus in our marriages, see Jesus in our workplace. But unlike these Greeks, we live on the other side of the cross and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we should not only want to see Jesus preached from the pulpit, we should want to see Jesus formed in us. 
That if we want to see Jesus in our family, in our personal interactions, in our marriages, in our churches, in our workplace, that it starts with being conformed to the image of the Son and our sanctification, our growing in godliness and holiness. It starts with praying to your Father in heaven, asking that he would form Christ in you. That he would conform you to the image of his Son more and more. So that is the dividing wall, but what about this dying seed? And Jesus replies, the hour has come to the request from Philip and the others that he would come out into the court of the Gentiles to see these Greeks, to meet these Greeks. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It's strange to us, maybe, at first reading because it doesn't really seem like an answer. I mean, the disciples just ask, Jesus, these men want to meet you. And his response is seemingly not directed towards them. But the response is actually a declaration that marks a sharp transition in John's gospel. Before we were told over and over again, his time had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. But here, that comes to an end. Christ declares that his crucifixion is quickly approaching. And Christ draws this out by using the analogy of the wheat kernel to describe the content of this hour. This picture is not only an expression of his death, but what his death will accomplish. We see that he describes this kernel of wheat is buried in the ground and it dies. And we need to understand by this, of course, that Christ is the kernel of wheat. Yet it is the death that produces many seeds. It is the death that produces many seeds. And because this is Christ's response to Greeks, we should see more going on in this analogy, this picture that he's giving us. Christ said on multiple occasions that his earthly ministry was to be marked by a focus on the Jewish nation. In Matthew 15, he said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. His ministry was a ministry before his people, to his people, the Jews, Israel. Yet if that is the case, by itself, how are we, most of us, Greeks and Gentiles, here today, believers in the Lord Jesus? That's why the answer he gives isn't actually a non-answer. He is saying that the content of his hour is that when he is buried in death, he will produce many seeds. He is saying that it is through his passion that these Greeks will come to see Jesus. Not only outwardly, but inwardly. Not only with their eyes, but with the eyes of faith. When Christ dies, the floodgates will be opened up and salvation shall come to people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Therefore, Paul continues in his letter to the Ephesian church saying, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. This is who Christ is, the self-sacrificial Savior, the one who lays his life down, the one who dies on behalf of those whom the Father has given to him. He dies for his sheep. Therefore, his is the life we are called to live. He is who we are called to be. And this is why Christ describes the Christian life in verses 25 and 26. That is to say, what are these seeds that he's going to produce? How are they going to live? How are they going to be different? And he says, the man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. The spirit-born and empowered person of God will be one who has their eyes on eternity and who loves to follow Christ's commands. They will be a person who knows that the kingdom of God is marked by sacrificial love, a being buried in dying so that the kingdom of God can be produced, who loves to be conformed to the image of the Son, to walk in the ways of the kingdom of God. And what does that look like? It means to die to yourself. It means to die to the life of this world with all of its fading realities that you may live to the life of the next world, the true world, the forever world. This is what it means to serve Christ, to imitate Christ in his dying that others may live. Romans 6, Paul speaks of this. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live at it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him. Like that wheat kernel in the ground through baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead. Through the glory of the Father we too may be raised to a new life. The dying seed becomes the life giving seed. The first Adam became a living being. But the second Adam becomes a life giving spirit. And he becomes this by being buried, perishable, being raised, imperishable, being sown in dishonor, being raised in glory, being sown in weakness, being raised in power, buried a natural body, raised a spiritual body. The dying seed gives life to many seeds, and this only comes about through his death. And that's why it's good Friday. But what about this drawing of all people? 
Jesus speaks in verse 27 saying his soul, his heart is troubled. And he speaks to his father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. There are comparisons to this moment with Jesus' prayer in the garden of Gethsemane. His soul or his heart is troubled. The weight of bearing the wrath of his father against the sin of humanity is heavy upon him. Yet just as in the garden Christ is committed to the will of his father, in this moment he is committed to the will of his father as well. It's for this reason that he came. For this hour that he was sent, Christ proclaims, to make atonement, to be the substitute, to bear the curse upon the cross so that through him his people could receive blessing. And we are told by Christ that his death is the glorification of his Father's name. That the cross is the greatest revelation of God's character. Then, just as at Jesus' baptism and at the Mount of Transfiguration, the Father speaks audibly from heaven. But this is for the benefit of the crowd and the disciples. As a seal of approval on Jesus' work. The Father says, I have glorified my name. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And then Jesus says, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. The crucifixion, the subsequent resurrection is the judgment of the world for maybe a couple of reasons. One is that it is the great proclamation of salvation, a dividing line which begins to split people. Are you for Jesus or are you against him? There is no middle ground. But another way in which it could be considered the judgment of the world is that because it ends the power of sin over his chosen ones. It makes me think of the song of 4,000 tongues to sing. Where Charles Wesley writes, he breaks the power of canceled sin. John Piper spoke to this once and said, When Charles Wesley taught us to sing, he breaks the power of canceled sin. He was teaching the fundamental truth about how the cross and our battle with sin are related. The cross cancels sins for all who believe on Jesus. Then on the basis of that cancelization or the cancellation of our sins, the power of actual sinning is broken. It's not the other way around. There would be no gospel and no music if we tried to sing, he cancels the guilt of conquered sins. No. First the cancelization, the cancella- cancellation, then the conquering. What is John Piper saying here? He's saying that the judgment of the world in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is that when we look upon it, we realize that all of our sin has been canceled, the guilt of it has been lost, and therefore it no longer has power over us. And it's in seeing the cross that we come to that realization, that we come to that recognition, that we come to understand that sin no longer holds power over us. He breaks the power of canceled sin. The judgment of the world is the revelation of the sinful, corrupt world in the reconciliation of his people. Another way to say it is the way Paul says it in 2 Corinthians. 
that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. The decisive act of the cross is a victory over sin. It breaks the power of canceled sin, and in doing so, it judges the world. Knowing that our sin has been canceled on the cross is what informs us that it is no longer that it no longer has power over us. Well, do you know that? Do you know that the cross has taken away the power of sin in your life? Do you really believe that? Do you look upon the cross and know that what is happening there is the judgment of this world? And the cancellation of the power of your sin. Do you think of that when you are in the midst of temptation and trials? But we read on that the decisive act of the cross is also a victory over Satan, the prince of this world. Christ proclaims that his death is a casting out of Satan. And do we know this? That Christ came to destroy the works of the devil, to bind the strong man that he may no longer deceive the nation so that the gospel proclamation can go forth in power. But not only to the lost sheep of Israel, through the breaking of the power of canceled sin and the casting out of the prince of this world after his resurrection, Christ can say to his disciples, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Why? Because in the cross and in his resurrection, they are Christ's rightful inheritance. This is why Christ says that when he is lifted up, that is on the cross, he will draw all men to himself. And what he means by this is all people without racial or ethnic distinction, all the nations will be drawn to him as his rightful inheritance. This is the victory of the cross. We don't come to the Lord's Supper to a dead Savior. We come to the Lord's table to a Savior who has conquered through death, who bears on his body the marks of the cross because they are the marks of his overcoming. The elements of the table are representative of his cross, of his passion, but they are Representative of that because it is through that that he has gained victory and salvation for his people. They are the life-giving marks of our victorious Savior. In the supper we are pointed to the cross, but we are also pointed beyond the cross. To him, our living Savior, who in his body... His physical body is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And by faith we are lifted up to commune with Him, our living Savior, bearing the marks of the cross so that we may know that He has died for us. That he has set this table for us. That his death was to display 
the glorious attributes and characteristics of God and to redeem a people for his own. And if I were to make one more point out of this passage, it would be about the darkness and the light, the contrast that Jesus describes in the last part in his response to the crowd. You see, the crowd rejected Jesus' declaration of victory through defeat, the victory through death. They said, our reading of the law or our reading of the Old Testament is that Christ, the Messiah, is to be eternal. And you're saying that he's to be lifted up? They understood what he meant, that he's saying lifted up means on a Roman cross or to be hanged. This is a stumbling block to them. It's contrary to worldly wisdom to have a dying Savior. And Paul says to himself, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Christ then puts himself before them as the light. And he tells them to come to him before the darkness overcomes them. He called them to faith in him that they may become sons of the light. Christ knew that he was about to leave them. and The time was running out for them to put their faith in him. And the same can be said of our moment in history right now. For Christ has gone to be seated at the right hand of the Father, but we know that he will come again. And this is something that Paul spoke of in his letter to the church in Thessalonica. He said, brothers and sisters, about times and dates... We do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light. And children of the day, we do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, to the Lord, to the light, let us be sober. Putting on faith and love as a breastplate. And the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath. But to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep we may live together with him. Therefore encourage one another. And build each other up. Just as in fact you are doing. So may we walk in the victory of the cross knowing sin and Satan have been defeated. And may we walk as children of the light in the midst of darkness, trusting in Christ, putting our faith in Him, and encouraging one another as that day approaches. And may we call others, as time remains, to flee to the lifted up light of the world, where they can find forgiveness of sin and eternal life. And may we not forsake the gathering together that we may partake of the means of grace he has provided to be encouraged as we wait for that day. May we go to Christ in faith, waiting for his appearance.
Amen. You pray with me. Father, we thank you for this time that we could look at your word. We thank you that it is so apparent to us that Christ, our suffering Savior, is also Christ, our victorious Savior, who in the reversal of worldly wisdom shows his triumph through death and who looked to the cross with joy for what it would accomplish, despising the shame. Who put the shame, the powers of darkness, when he nailed the guilt of our sin to the wood. Father, we're so thankful for the salvation we have in Christ that he has taken all our sin away and he has given us all his righteousness. And may we always hold that so dear and precious as we wait for your son's coming again. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.